This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 209th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most impressive new voices in the world of television, Frankie Shaw. At just 36, Shaw is the showrunner, producer, director, writer, and star of Showtime's widely acclaimed new comedy series, Smilf, which was largely inspired by the drama of her own experience as a young single mother. The show's eight-episode first season began rolling out last November. Its premiere attracted the highest ratings for a new Showtime comedy in five years. And just weeks later, it was renewed for a second season, which is expected in late 2018 or early 2019. Back in January, though, Shaw received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Comedy Series. And in just a few months, Emmy nominations for Best Comedy Series, Best Directing for a Comedy Series, Best Writing for a Comedy Series and Best Actress in a Comedy Series, could well follow. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by THR's senior writer on television, Michael O'Connell, who was kind enough to stop by to help me take my first reluctant steps, little more than a week after the 2018 Oscars ceremony, into analyzing the landscape of the 2018 Emmy race. Yes, believe it or not, Emmy season is already upon us. Many of the same awards consultants who were involved with Oscar campaigns, as well as others who weren't, of course, are already pitching members of the press about Emmy's coverage. The first Emmy screener actually arrived back in early February. That was promoting the Audience Network's Mr. Mercedes. The TV Academy season of FYC events kicked off last Friday, March 9th, with Showtime's The Shy. This week, the March issue of Emmy's magazine arrived with a four-year consideration ad for ABC's Blackish wrapped around its cover. And on this coming Friday, March 16th, Paley Fest gets underway here in L.A. with a lineup Flush with Emmy hopefuls. So it's really happening already, Mikey. What are you, are you ready for this? No, I'm not. <laughs> Neither. Crazy. I heard there was actually a bidding war this year, like an auction style war for FYC nights oh. to determine the calendar. Oh, I mean, this, this feels really early. The Emmys themselves are not till like mid-September, right? No, not until mid-September. Oh, well, I guess, you know, it will give us stuff to write about hopefully at least but i know i want to just talk since this is our first episode in the quote-unquote emmy season and just kind of give listeners an overview of of things we'll be talking about over the next few months last year you know we saw a couple of content providers specifically the two highest profile streaming services netflix and amazon spend a fortune on fyc related 
exhibition space is something we've never really seen before, I think, on the campaign trail. And we'll never know the, the extent to which that sort of campaigning actually impacted the number of nominations that those services received, 91 and 16, respectively. But we do know that Emmy's Night produced the first ever series award for a streaming service, and that service was not named Netflix or Amazon. It was Hulu with The Handmaid's Tale. So I guess just generally, do we think that this season, the level of aggressiveness of campaigning is likely to calm down because we saw that it didn't necessarily make a huge dent? Or do we think that actually just makes the the, the sort of big guns even hungrier? It is not coming down at all. If anything, <laughs> it's heating up. And I think the big win for Hulu last year was sort of evidence that you can't just spend a lot of money. You have to have impactful programming. And whether you liked Handmaid's Tale or not, it came about at a very specific time and it sort of captured the zeitgeist and that zeitgeist lingered through nomination voting and and eventually just the actual voting. Have you had any sense if folks at Netflix or, or Amazon feel that that was money well spent? I mean, th- these were very impressive spaces that members of the Academy were invited to visit for weeks on end and see everything from costumes to panels with people from these shows, drinks, all kinds of stuff were made available for weeks. But at the end of the day, does it does that make a difference? It, it didn't seem to make much of a difference yeah. last year. And I haven't heard if Netflix is doing a space again, but I have heard that Amazon is. They are. They're yeah. doing it at the same venue, running it up for several club. weeks, yes. And I hear that the big push, obviously, is Maisel. Yes, which we will come to, and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I wonder if part of the thing with Netflix is that the fact that they had so many, as and this is not going to change, but they have so many offerings that even if you have a space to promote everything and you're doing it in a beautiful way, the bottom line is people just only have so many hours to check out your stuff. So maybe the FYC space makes people more aware of what they can check out, but it's overwhelming at mm-hmm. points. Volume has to be a problem for Netflix, and they are sort of notoriously not as targeted in their marketing. They definitely have a few favorites for the award season, and a lot of those favorites are just determined by critics to yeah. begin with. But it's it's not the way you see it with HBO, where they have a relatively small stable, they have a mini series or two a year, they have a movie or two a year. They see what works, they see what stands a chance, and they put so much effort into those. And that's why HBO dominates year after year, year. even as their competitors are now eclipsing them wildly in output. Interesting. Well, Netflix, their show that put them on the map, House of Cards, is not Emmys eligible this season, but another show that also lost its star to Me Too-related allegations, Amazon's Transparent, is, do we think that shows like these that have been caught up in all of what's going on can still remain viable as Emmy contenders, or will they, sort of like James Franco's movie The Disaster Artist, just will it be easier to just avoid them? And of course, Franco, meanwhile, is going to be a presence or or maybe not in the Emmy race this year because he is the two leads of The Deuce from HBO. So what do you think the impact of the whole Me Too movement, and, and even if it's not necessarily things that have been proven or admitted or whatever just does the does the stench of being associated with any of that hurt these shows i mean as you mentioned house of cards is not something that we're really going to have to worry about for another year because it's not premiering till the end of 2018 i would be shocked if robin wright didn't get some sort of 
farewell mm-hmm. nom for that just because she she's taking a lot on and yeah. sort of assuming the the lead role of this series that could have easily just been snuffed out. Right. Transparent seemed to have fallen out of yes. favor a bit with Academy voters. And this is obviously not going to help it. There won't be a nomination for Jeffrey no, Tambor. And I that was such a drawn out messy thing the future of the show is still unclear it's coming back we don't think it's coming back this year i can't imagine that they're gonna put that much effort they being amazon into campaigning for it even though it will be eligible and i don't know jill salloway might sneak away with something right and it did fall off the series nom anyway before this so as you say maybe it's the people have just moved on anyway but what about the deuce how are they gonna handle this i really think the bigger concern with the deuce is that David Simon is cursed with Emmy voters. Really? This yeah. is a man behind some of the most beloved television creations, including The Wire, yeah. arguably the greatest television series of all time. Right. Never got any Emmy love. His follow-up to that was called Treme, yep. and it was this like little watch sort of like industry darling, but never, no. never cracked anything in the Emmy race. And Meg Gyllenhaal, I believe, got a Golden Globe mm-hmm. nomination. The overlap with those voting bodies is non-existent, right. and the Golden Globes are notoriously a horrible indicator of what's going to happen in the Emmy race. But I could see it getting some. I can't imagine James Dave Franco Franklin. is going to be rehabilitated to the point of being nominated By at that point. Yeah. yeah, but he's filming the second season, so I guess they're moving forward. Yeah, well, HBO's Veep which won Best Comedy Series in each of the last three years, is also not eligible this season. The same is true for a couple of shows that were nominated for Best Drama Series the last few years, the aforementioned House of Cards, as well as AMC's Better Call Saul. However, HBO's biggest behemoth in the drama series category, Game of Thrones, and in the comedy series category, Curb Your Enthusiasm, when Veep is not there, they're back after a period of being away and I just wonder if you think it is for any reason wrong to assume that they would be big players again as they were when they were previously in the mix. It is almost unfathomable to think of Game of Thrones going away from Emmy nominations not being the most nominated series. Right. Just looking at the scope of the production and the technical awards that it's at least nominated for right. in the past, it's going to make a real big play for best drama. The question there even though that was a complicated season for the Mm -hmm. show is is handmaid's tale really going to be able to pull off a second season that lives up to the first and are people still going to care the way they did last year even if it is just as good right so i think that's a, a big question and Almost more interesting than Veep, which has won the last three years, mm-hmm. is Julia Louis-Dreyfus. No actress has ever had, what was it, six consecutive years right. of winning lead actress in a comedy. That opening is... Yeah, what happens it, Yeah, it, it is the most wide open race. It's true. And I guess, in a way, it, it's fascinating that it comes in a year when freshmen comedy series seem very strong mm-hmm. on the comedy side of things. Not only Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Smelf, but also Glow and so many others that people are excited about that weren't in the mix last year, right? Glow wasn't in a year ago. Glow was not in the mix last year, but one thing you have to keep in mind with Maisel is that they have not gone before the TV Academy board yet to make their case that they're a comedy because they're an hour, because at the moment, they are technically considered a drama. 
and we've seen shows campaign to be put into different category before. It worked with Shameless. It did not work with Orange is the mm-hmm. New Black. That show got shuffled off to yeah. drama and sort of disappeared on Miami right. radar. So what do you think the likeliest outcome there is? Do you think they will accept it as a comedy in the way that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association did and Critics' Choice Group did? Because with both of those groups, it not only was accepted as a comedy, but it won Best Comedy Series and Best Actress in a Comedy Series. It has all this momentum. It would be a pretty stunning thing for them to suddenly call it a drama. And put it up against Game of Thrones. It would be pretty stunning, (laughs) and it would be pretty frustrating to both the creators and Amazon. I know Amy Sherman Palladino told me in December that that was their feeling about Gilmore Girls, that that show, they never expected a nomination for the show, but they always thought that Lauren Graham might have snuck in there over the seven-season run of that show, but she never did because people really didn't know what to do with that show. They didn't know what it was. Well, what was its official classification? It was a drama. But it was like a really silly. Yeah, yeah, it it was a dramedy. And I mean, Maisel has moments of drama. They the Academy could be so easily justified in calling it a drama. But that's not what the creators think it is. And I don't know what's more important there. That is fascinating. Well, I guess, do we have any sense of when they will have those decisions? Probably pretty soon. Pretty soon. Yeah, I would say I feel like they came out in in March and April last year. Well, That is very interesting. And I know already things are in motion with FYC, Paley Fest type things where it'll be helpful for them to be able to tell people when they're in front of voters, like, this is what we are. But I guess they they don't know that yet. Now, you you mentioned how the Golden Globes sort of have a shaky prediction record or correlation record with the Emmys. It's not shocking when you think about the fact that they happened like nine months before. Yeah. Same roughly time period as the SAG Awards and Critics' Choice Awards. Now, there are a few instances each year where those guys get on board really early for, you know, shows that it's not that they necessarily were so far forward thinking or whatever. I mean, it was obvious that Mr. Robot was a was an interesting good Mm -hmm. show two years ago, whatever. And actually last year, Those groups, the Globe, SAG, Critics' Choice Coalition, sort of all agreed, I think, on This Is Us, The Crown, Atlanta, Stranger Things, Westworld, which all did end up coming into play later on. Others, there were some false reads. Of course, you had Divorce and Insecure never showed up really with the TV Academy. Same with Graves from Epics. But this year, aside from Maisel, which did very well again with two of those three groups, Globes and Critics' Choice, are there others that they at least put a spotlight on a little bit that we think are likely to show up again in September, or even actually with the nomination sooner than that? I think a a wild card other than Maisel is definitely Smelf on Showtime. Mm -hmm. They had, I believe, two or three nominations. But it's always this sort of question, like, is this them getting ahead of the curve and, and spotlighting talent that's like making a widespread impact in the larger Hollywood community, or is it a Mozart in the Jungle situation or an Outlander situation where the HFPA just loves these shows and no one else really... Right, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Jane the Virgin. Yeah, well, I guess this year, the the first year shows that the Globes nominated, aside from Maisel and Smelf, were in one category or another, The Deuce, The Good Doctor, which I want to ask you more about in a minute, from ABC, Netflix's Ozark, Glow, and I Love Dick. I just have a bit of a 
hard time seeing like I Love Dick happening Please remind again. me what I Love Dick was nominated <laughs> for. I believe it was, was that Catherine Hahn? It was Catherine Hahn. Yeah. Okay, yes. So, I mean, it's possible that they could, some of these can get acting nominations, but in terms of a, a series nomination, I, I, be hard pressed to see anything other than Maisel. It's hard enough for a popular, widely well received show that premieres in June right. of a certain year to sustain momentum and like sort of like do the thing that Get Out did at the Oscars mm-hmm. last year and stay in the conversation for that long. It's not going to be I Love Dick. I I can't imagine right. that. And as you just to your point, like the most recent example where a show was able to sustain sort of the bump from Mm -hmm. January and go all the way almost to the win, I guess would be This Is Us. And I don't know. I mean, The Good Doctor is the highest rated. You know ratings better than anybody. It is the the most watched new drama. Since This Is Us, right? Or even maybe succeeding. It's actually, I think more people watch... But it's but this is us is higher rated. But that's like boring Nielsen semantics. <laughs> well, but so does the fact that it has those kinds of ratings? I mean, that didn't really do anything for Empire a couple of years ago, or in terms of getting a series Emmy nomination or things like that. Is there any world in which the Good Doctor follows in the footsteps of This Is Us into the becoming only the second? It would be only the second network drama to get a series nomination since 2011 i mean you know better than anyone the most competitive race at the emmys is best drama Mm -hmm. it is so hard to crack the fact that game of thrones is in this year the fact that handmaid's tale is returning it's it's so wildly competitive and i don't think that it seems likely the good doctor is going to get the one or maybe two broadcast slots and two is very mm-hmm, optimistic. Mm-hmm. But I think that ABC is is ABC and Sony mm-hmm. are probably going to do a big push behind Freddie Highmore. Yeah, because the show is definitely being watched by people. Mm-hmm. He's a recognizable talent. And if they're going to get anything, that seems like the most yeah. likely. But because those people have so few dramas in the game this year. Sony doesn't have Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely going to be some money spent on The Good Doctor, probably focused on Freddy. Interesting. Why did Netflix's other highly touted new show this year, Mindhunter, via David Fincher, why did that not show up with any of these early groups? How can you explain that? It's 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Everybody that I talked to enjoyed it. It didn't seem like a very HFPA show. <laughs> but I, critics? But critics, yeah, I don't... I don't know. It's like a really interesting question. I I want to see what Netflix does with that show moving forward mm-hmm. uh, during FYC. The, the launch of the show itself didn't seem to even get that much promotion, but it's pretty recognizable talent. Mm-hmm. Roth I'm, is out there doing stuff, I think. John yeah. Roth. David Fincher's hand in that show is so much more apparent than it ever was on mm-hmm. House of Guards. Yeah, right. Um, and this is an Oscar-nominated director and, and one of the say, like preeminent auteurs exactly, working today. Yeah. I would be shocked if it didn't get something, but that seems like a show that could have done so well if it was just one season and it was limited. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's in the main drama race, I think might hurt it. it. Makes it tough, yeah. One of the big trends this year seems to be rebooting shows that were popular years ago and then sort of faded away, and now for whatever reason they're being brought back. Is it realistic to think that rebooted shows like Twin Peaks on Showtime, Will and Grace from NBC, 
Roseanne on ABC, Arrest Development potentially if they sneak it in before the eligibility period ends on Netflix. Is it realistic to think that these shows could have the same sort of resonance with the TV Academy in their reheated incarnations that they did when they were actually fresh new new shows? I think we've already seen evidence that Will and Grace could definitely make some impact at the Emmys this year. Outside of the fact that it was nominated for Golden Globes, whatever that's worth, mm-hmm. it was nominated for a couple WGA awards mm-hmm. and and won, I think, Best Episodic Comedy, which is not insignificant. Mm-hmm. Roseanne is a big wait and see. Uh, it premieres in two weeks. I don't know that the TV Academy is going to be super inclined to award Roseanne Barr, a, right. a very complicated <laughs> and often problematic individual. Right. It's uh, <laughs> a very polite way of putting it. Yes. And gosh, wait, what are the well, other Twin reboots? Peaks, though, could be big, right? Twin Peaks could be big. It would be... That'll be going in as limited. Which which makes it a little bit of an easier road, A right? little bit of an easier road. But Twin Peaks has not made any impact in any of the award shows that sort of have transpired since it premiered again. Right. Almost a year ago. That right. show came out the week after eligibility closed. And yet, when it did come out, it was like the hot center of the universe. I mean, people, film critics who are generally, you know, hold their nose up at TV, mm-hmm. were putting Twin Peaks as one of their top 10 films of the year, considering they were arguing that yes. it is a cinematic work. And so there is a kind of audience for it among highbrow, you know, whatever folks. But it is tough to remain in the conversation for that long. And that is going to be another, I mean, Showtime has so much stuff in the mix this year, not only Smilf and, but the shy people are really excited about. Mm -hmm. They've got to deal with twin peaks too. And I know I'm, we're not even talking about Homeland and a lot of other things, Ray Donovan, right? So they are billions, billions. They still really want billions to get in. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, the shy should definitely not be discounted because yeah. Lena Waithe has already proven herself to be a a hot commodity yeah. with the TV Academy voters. I don't know. I mean, Twin Peaks at this point is such a wild card. Mm-hmm. There are certain episodes of that that were so universally praised for what they did from a filmmaking standpoint. Mm-hmm. But does that translate to like the everyday TV Academy right. voter tuning in? Like, because the numbers for that show were not good and right. anecdotally it didn't really like take hold of industry water coolers right. but it seems totally valid that it could be nominated well speaking of limited series last year i think the biggest phenomenon at the emmys of all was big little lies from mm-hmm. hbo does this year look like like we have another limited series of th- that could be a steamroller like that if it's not twin peaks could it be the Looming Tower, which is rolling out now on Hulu, or The Assassination of Gianni Versace, the latest American crime story installment, which is on FX. I don't know. Maybe that's Ryan Murphy's last FX thing. I don't know. How's, how's that going to work now that he's going to Netflix? Well, it's not his last FX thing. Okay. He definitely is still in business with FX. Okay. There's, at the very least, going to be another season of American Horror Story. Okay. But could I mean, either of those be like a Big Little Lies, or it just doesn't have the buzz? Versace is not OJ. Yeah. I would be shocked if it went away empty-handed, mm-hmm. at least among nominations, but it is not going to sweep the way the first installment of the American Crime Story mm-hmm. anthology did. What about 
the looming tower. What is, what's their sense of how people are going to... I mean, it seems like that's a big... Je- like, Jeff Daniels between that and Godless has got to factor in here quite a bit this year. Right? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of Jeff Daniels this year. I think people still need to see a little bit more of that. I believe only four episodes mm-hmm. at this exact moment have been put on the streaming service. It's definitely not zeitgeisting the mm-hmm. way that a Big Little Lies or a People versus OJ did. But... I mean, Hulu clearly has some serious sway with Emmy voters now, so I wouldn't be surprised. Right. I know Netflix is in the mix in that category as well this year with Godless, another Jeff Daniels again project. But where's HBO? This is normally the category they dominate year after year after year. What do they have in in the mix this year? Their most exciting mini, or most buzzed about, I would say, is not coming up until summer. It's ineligible. It's Sharp Objects. It's Amy Adams. Mm -hmm. The two big ones that they've had have both been sort of odd ones that came out with not a lot of promotion. There was Mm -hmm. Gunpowder, which I believe was a BBC co-production. And then they dropped Steven Soderbergh's Mosaic with Sharon Stone earlier this year. It aired. It didn't. It didn't make that much noise. Yeah. But, yeah. I see that she's looks like she'll be out beating the pavement a little bit. So maybe just if maybe that'll be the focus. Get get Sharon a nomination. I would whatever. never <laughs> doubt that she would not be hitting the pavement. Right. <laughs> well, the last thing I will ask you about is this: in the best drama series and best comedy series categories, just to note something kind of interesting. Game of Thrones, the defending winner, wasn't a winner at all until its fifth season. Mm -hmm. And Veep, the defending comedy winner, wasn't a winner until its fourth season. In other words, it seems like it sometimes takes Emmy voters a little while to catch up to quality content or to sort through, you know, there's just so much out there. I think we saw that to an extent last year when Netflix finally got some recognition for Black Mirror, which had been building an audience. This year, do you have the sense that any of the shows that have been around for a little while, not the rookies, not the defending champions, certainly obviously not Game of Thrones and V, but others that have been out there for a little bit but haven't won yet, could factor in here? I know it's the final season for the Americans, for instance, on FX. They've only ever even nominated it once for Best Drama Series. Could Is it just wishful thinking to imagine that this could be the year they they come around to reality, or, or is that, you know, it it's just doesn't seem likely? It could go anyway with The Americans. Yeah. This was a show that critics loved for years, and they were so protective of it, and they were so <laughs> bitter every year it wasn't nominated. And then in 2016, it stunned everyone with Best Series and Carrie Joe Russell 16. and Matthew Reeves nominations, not wins. And then in 2017, the actors were nominated again, but the show was not nominated after what was considered like a, a muddy season so this kind of it depends on can they stick the landing Mm -hmm. like if they put out a great final season i'd be shocked if it wasn't nominated and it it could definitely make a go for it but i mean my god game of thrones is going to be so (laughs) hard to beat I will just say, you know, it is insufficient to just throw Margot Martindale and Emmy every year for the Americans. You gotta, yeah. you gotta do a little more than that. But anyway, Mikey O'Connell, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now for my interview with Frankie Shaw. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Shaw and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how a girl from blue-collar Southie wound up, against all odds, studying at Upper Crust Milton Academy and Barnard College, and how her experiences in both sorts of environments shaped the person and artist she is today, what the circumstances were by which she became pregnant by her boyfriend at 24, 
breaking up with him shortly thereafter, and ultimately deciding to keep the baby and move across the country to pursue an acting career, how years of struggle to find quality acting opportunities led her to begin trying to create some for herself through short films, one of which, Smilf, was inspired by her own experiences as a single mother and won the Short Film Jury Award for U.S. Fiction at the 2015 Sundance Film Festival, how various other gigs like parts on ABC's sitcom Mixology and USA's drama series Mr. Robot, as well as various people with whom she crossed paths along the way, like Jill Soloway, Catherine Hardwick, and Paul Feig, helped to prepare her for her opportunity of a lifetime, a chance to turn Smilf into a pilot and ultimately a series, and what she makes of the way in which that work has been received, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. So we always begin with very basic stuff. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? I think we have some indication from the show, but Mm -hmm. take it away if you will. Sure. I was born in Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And for a little while, I lived in South Boston Mm -hmm. when I was first born. And then I moved to Brookline. And I was raised by my mother, who was a loan officer And we didn't see my dad. And so she raised me and my brother in Brookline. And I went to public school up until my last two years of high school. I'm going to bring that up in a minute. But I guess as a kid, were movies or TV a big part of your life? Do you have any favorites? Yeah, they were a big part. That was sort of the thing me and my mom did. So it was NYPD Blue (laughs) was, was a big one. And then she would show me... Dallas and Dynasty, which was sort of like over my head. I didn't really understand. But then when we started watching Roseanne together, that was the one that really sort of stuck. Why do you think that was? I mean, it was so it felt like my family. You know? <laughs> I was like, oh, it just felt representative of the way they all talk to each other. Right. Like my aunts and my cousin and my brother and everything. No holds barred. No kind of putting on airs, right? No putting on airs. And also just this way of making fun of the people you love. Right. (laughs) That felt so real to me. So you mentioned, I guess, something kind of, or referred to the fact that something big happened in high school, which, or midway through, from what I read, you're working as like a short order cook in the summer. And what happened? So it was Longwood Cricket Club. Okay. And I was a short order cook, like making all of the sort of wealthy Brookline Country Club (laughs) goers. Their most popular order was chicken salad sandwich, hold the bread. It was like my first real, you know, summer job. And there was this guy there, Nick Rosenthal, and he was like, you should come to my high school. I go to the best high school. And I didn't love Brookline High. (laughs) And so I was like, all right, sure, why not? And then I applied in the summer and to be a junior and they were like no it's too late to apply you know we're not taking any more applications but i i didn't relent really and i just (laughs) said well just have an interview with me so they're like okay fine and then we had an interview and then they were waiting for my recommendations from my teachers and they couldn't accept me without having that Mm And it was my English teacher we were waiting for because she was in Russia all summer studying like, Russian <laughs> literature. And I 
was already, I went to preseason at Brookline High for field hockey. And I remember getting the voicemail, like, welcome to Milton Academy. <laughs> but they gave me a scholarship and I had to board there. So my whole life sort of flipped around. Well, what was the appeal to you aside from your friends saying you should come here? Or, you know, what, what did it represent to you? Like on the outside, it was white picket fences. And like, it was just was, it felt like opportunity and... And it felt like the people I wanted to be around because they were so, they just seemed so well-spoken <laughs> and smart and interesting. Like, I don't think I even told my mom I was applying. I was just going to ask, like, how did she feel about all this? It's always proud in hindsight, you know? It's like, she's like, oh, great. Like, how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> and then being like, my daughter goes to Milton, you know, that kind of thing. So, but she was excited. And then we would have dinner once a week because I would... I was boarding and yeah, everything sort of changed because I would sort of coast at my other high school. And when I got to Milton, it was like a, such a wake up call in terms of the work that was expected of me. And it really did, I feel like, change the trajectory of my life. Well, would you have necessarily gone to college had you not gone to Milton? Was that always sort of expected that you would go to college? Yeah, it's this funny thing where it was never talked about. Mm -hmm. I did really well in school, but my mom didn't really care that much about it. So, like, they, I remember there were moments in high school in my freshman and sophomore year where she would have me skip school to help her clean the house. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That took me a second. Yeah. Like, it really wasn't a thing where just that education was that important necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so I would have probably gone to some local school, I think, and I was always like, oh, I'll be in advertising. You know, growing up, you think that's what the professional people do. I'm like, right. I'll be classy advertising lady. <laughs> but then at Milton, yeah, just not getting good grades at first and being so in over my head. And then they were so kind to me where they, first of all, gave me a scholarship and then said I could apply to any college and they would pay for it. Like really? all the application fees. Wow. And so... Yeah, that, I think I applied to like 23 schools and got rejected <laughs> by like 21 and got into a few. But all right, so those two years, though, at Milton, did it feel at all like culture shock having come from a very different sort of upbringing the way it sounds to now, you know, the chicken salad sandwich crowd? I mean, it was weird because my mom is sort of this unexpected person where she was really interested in certain aspects of culture you know like she is really into opera and she would take me to the museum of fine arts but i'd never seen a movie that wasn't in the megaplex mm -hmm. until i got to college and i'd never like read a newspaper until i got to college and so at milton it was sort of i just saw these girls wearing pea coats i was like we need to go to j crew right now <laughs> it was just like a sort of a different it's just a kind of waspy right. you know and you were accepted there yeah, because of basketball. So I played basketball, and I immediately had friends through right. that. And basketball had been sort of, in your mind, a potential way out from the beginning? Yeah. I really thought for a while that I was going to play in the WNBA, which <laughs> I was so delusional. But it definitely drove me in my childhood. Right. You eventually did well enough at Milton to apply to and get into Barnard, which is a great school. You've said that was really the most formative thing because now you're in New York, which I, I guess you had not even been to New York. Never been to New York. So that, and we're not talking about like California is the other side. This is not that far. No, it's like a three hour train ride right. or something. Yeah. So I guess just, you know, it's all what seems 
far and crazy in your mind. So now you're there. Yeah. And what was going on during those four years there? Yeah, I mean, I was so naive when I got there. I thought Chelsea was an island. Like, I wouldn't even take the train downtown because I didn't know where I would how to get to the island of Chelsea. But <laughs> it was mainly taking a photography class, which sort of opened my mind, and then also working at Kim's Video. Wow, So there's cool. a Kim's Video up in Harlem. Yeah. And... That was where I feel like I started getting my education in terms of what was possible within a film. You know, were you going through different directors and yeah, yeah, going through and and later. So basically, my boss was was this guy Dave Kang, and he wanted to be a director, and he studied Cassavetes at BU. So he came to New York, managed this video store, and he would have us, like actors rehearse in like a dorm, one of the dorm basements, and he would just give us a scenario. We would act it out. He would film it, and then he'd go home and write the script based on what we did in the on the, in the scene. Wow. Sort of, I guess, is what Cassavetti yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching Paris, Texas and A Woman Under the Influence, and that was like, oh, I want to do that. Have you ever met Jenna Rollins? No. You got to. I, she's, she's in town, and she's the nicest lady. I did meet her daughter. Really? Yeah, for a, if she was possibly going to maybe direct an episode yeah. of Smilf. But I need to meet Jenna. Yeah, she's the nicest. We've, we've done some stuff with her, and she would love you. She, she, there are certain act. I think she was, for whatever reason, particularly into Sarah Paulson. Oh, really? And <laughs> I had her do a little, little quick clip thing because I knew that would Sarah Paulson would go insane, and she did. I mean, but because people don't think like that, you're kind of the carrying on the spirit of what they were doing. My email was so basic, <laughs> yeah. but it was I love Jenna Rollins at gmail.com. <laughs> really? Yes. Well, well, I'll let you know if we okay. if we get her in here for something. But acting, this is the first time we've talked about acting in this conversation. Was that actually doing stuff for the guy from Kim's video, the first acting, or had there been stuff before that? No, not that was at the all. first thing. Yeah. I mean I was <laughs> took like an acting class at Barnard sort of simultaneously, but no, I had no clue that a career in any of this was possible mm-hmm. or how. But in even through my four years at Barnard, I was like, I know I want to make movies. I just don't, I can't visualize how it's done. I could, like, I remember like saying that out loud to someone. That's why I ended up going into acting because I'm like that. I, I, I get right. But no, in school, it was just all basketball. Who is Catherine Diekman? Catherine Diekman, yeah. yeah. So, she, okay, so I went to Barnard, went there, had two years straight. Then my junior year, I took a semester off and lived in Maine and worked on a lobster boat. Just to, wanted a break? or Yeah, New York was a lot. Mm-hmm. And I actually got a job babysitting for these guys in Maine. Andre Bishop, who runs Lincoln Center, and Peter Manning. And I, they, so this was the big change (laughs) because I went to be, I was their nanny in Vinyl Haven, Maine. And I'd wake up at like noon for the first week, roll out of bed, and be like, hey, what are we doing today? (laughs) And they sat me down. We're like, that's not okay. You need to wake up at seven with our daughter. (laughs) You need to make her breakfast. And then they hung out with like the New York theater elite. And I would come to these dinners. And on Sundays, Peter would like teach me, this is how you read the New York Times. Like, they, really, they really like indoctrinated me with like how to like be an intellectual, yeah, I guess, yeah. you know? And I remember coming home. So that was the summer going to my junior year into the fall. I took the fall off. And then my grandma got sick and I moved actually in with her in Southie. 
and my aunts and everyone was like, what happened to you? Because <laughs> were you still reading the paper and stuff? Yeah, there? yeah. yeah I could, like, knew how to set the table. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't an animal anymore. Right. And so I attribute that to them. So I ended up having, like graduating in three and a half years, but having this one outstanding credit. And so I reached out to Catherine after graduating, after walking, and say, would you do an independent study with me? I want to write a script. How'd you know about her? So when I was at school, I did a bunch of short films as an actress for the graduate program, Mm -hmm. the MFA program at Columbia. And they would talk about her as, as their favorite writing teacher, some of the students I worked with. And so I just like went up to the film school to the fourth floor, put a note under her door, didn't hear anything, went back. And then she said no. And then finally. No to advising your independence. Yeah. So I'm like, would you over? I'm like, you wouldn't have to just one set of notes and I get the credit. And she's like, I'm so busy with my grad students. I have a family, you know. And I remember like leaving her bagels for some reason, thinking that that would work. And it worked. (laughs) And so she was like, fine, I'll do two sets of notes. I'll read a draft and then you write another one. That'll be your final thing. And so, yeah, we've maintained a friendship this whole time. That's great. Yeah. And that was really the first thing that you'd ever written. First script I had written, yeah. Did you ever try to do anything with it? No, but it's funny. There are some themes remnant of Smilf. Like there's no motherhood, but there's like a girl in Southie, like a lost girl. It's sort of like a love story with a vet, but yeah, just seeing some of the similarities. So when you were now going out in the real world, did you feel like there was no question that what you were going to pursue in some way was acting or was there was there some question about that? No, I was dead set on it. I really was because it felt like an athletic competition. It felt really just like, you know, self-competition. And so, yeah, I was I just wanted to see if I could. Right. I was really. And you were always at that point planning to do it from New York? Yeah. So basically, I graduated from Barnard and had interned at Gersh, and I stole the password to the (laughs) breakdowns, (laughs) and I started self-submitting. Right. And then got my first job, and then... Was this, like, so many great actors, Law & Order? So the Law & Order was actually this story where I had gone to a yoga class, (laughs) and this is so ridiculous, but there was a director in this yoga class, and in the beginning of the class, the woman says... When I first graduated college, I would submit my resume and then go to yoga. I'm like, didn't get hired for a year. And I just yelled out, amen. <laughs> and this guy comes up to me and he's like, I love it when people joke around in yoga. People are too serious in yoga. What do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm an actress, but I don't have an agent. I'm just kind of doing what she said, like going to yoga. And he's like, well, you should meet my agent. And then I met Sarah Fargo at Paradigm, who was my first agent. And then that's how I got through yoga. Through yoga. That's unbelievable. They're going to have so many other actors. They're going to hate you over that story. Oh, my God. So at what point did you then, I believe, get involved with a fellow actor and I guess later a director while while you were still involved, right? Mark Webber. Yes. Mr. Mark Webber. Mr. Mark Webber. My dear friend and father of my son. Yes. So this is another sort of fun story where... So I'd done all these MFA shorts as an actress at Columbia, and this teacher, Sloan, she was the editing teacher, and she was editing Morgan J. Freeman's next movie. They were trying to cast this tiny part. She said she saw me walking down St. Mark's. It's all a story of, like, kismet and serendipity. Yeah, no. Walking down St. Mark's, you know, after college and, like, the year after college, and called Morgan. She's like, oh, there was this girl who was in all of the MFA shorts. She'd be perfect for that part. 
And so somehow we all got in touch. And then I auditioned and did this movie called Just Like the Sun. This was in 2006, maybe, and met Mark Weber on that set in North Carolina. And we worked together for two days. And it was like this, you know, we were so young. You said at that point, what, 21, 22? No, everyone has my age wrong. Okay. Yeah. We can set the... the yeah, please. This yeah. is definitive. I am 36. Okay. So, okay. I be, yeah, I don't know how that happened. Okay. I think because of this show, Blue Mountain State, once it was recorded wrong. Anyways, so <laughs> I was 24. Well, three, not okay. you weren't that often. Not that far. <laughs> when I met him. Right. And 25 when I got pregnant. Okay. And so that relationship began on the set of that project and lasted for two how long? Years. Two years. Yeah. And did it end before or after you found out you were pregnant? So I found out I was pregnant on the set of Explicit Ills, which was a movie he directed, mm -hmm. which we all thought was going to be this big thing because Rosario Dawson and Paul Dano are in it. And I found out on that set, I remember, you know, taking the pregnancy test and I knew Mark and I were breaking up. We were already like on the way to break up or we had a few times. It was this impending thing. Mm -hmm. And... While it was raining, walked around in the rain. I called my aunts. I went up to Boston, and they were like, you need to move back to Boston. Had you told him at this point? He knew, and yeah. he was just, he had to finish shooting the movie. He had, like, three Couldn't days left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, like, such a sensitive, sweet person. Like, oh, we're going to have a baby. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I need to go think about right, this. Right. So I went to Boston, talked to my aunts. They said, you know, we know you have the love, but you need the stability, move home. So then I went and met Mark in New York and I told him I was keeping the baby and I was moving to LA and we're breaking up. Which, in the same conversation. Yeah, pretty much, which you, everyone, not only him was like, you're out of your mind. Oh my God. But that's what I did. And if it's not too personal to ask, like, was that a tough call about whether or not to move forward with this? Because, I mean, again, just to reiterate the situation, mm -hmm. you were 25. Yeah. You had no real contacts out in L.A. None. And no money. And no money, which is, those are all kind of important things. And you were going to move out against the advice of your family in Boston, who at that time, at least, there was no commitment that anyone would be coming with you, right? So you'd be on your own, presumably, like, Craigslisting a place in LA. Which is what I did. Which is what you did. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, you know, it's it seems so unlikely is a word, but I I feel like I was so naive too. And I also just I don't know, I thought like I I wanna do this work and you either have to be in one of these two cities and I needed separation from this person, so that's where I go. But even just the idea of, like, had you always kind of yearned to be a mother or any of that? No. no. That's why I did it, because right. I had no idea what it would be like. Right. I mean, so the reason why I did not not have the baby, I had had an abortion mm -hmm. six months before, and I 
this is so insane. I don't know if you're going to, but anyways, <laughs> but I'll just tell it since I started. So I used to listen to the, no, I've never to, ever told this I'm story. Honored. Okay. I'm honored. I used to listen to this podcast that this Buddhist, this Lama, yeah. he'd host this podcast, Lama Marut. And it was online or, or it I was, get... yeah, I, just, I don't, yeah, online. He lived in Texas or something. Yeah. He wasn't, he was American. Like, I don't even know if he was really a Buddhist monk, but I don't know. He said he was. I fell for it. He sold it. And I'd had this abortion. Things were really rough at the time with Mark. Yeah. And so I was in a bad place and really depressed and alone, felt really alone. And I was wondering if I, if what I did was wrong. And so I emailed this random Buddhist monk and said, how do the Buddhists feel about abortion? Is it murder? And he said, yes, it is murder. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> now, you had grown up in like a Catholic household? I grew up Jewish, Jewish, actually. Yeah. My mom raised me Jewish. Okay. My real name is Rachel Francis. Yeah. Nice Jewish name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice Jewish. <laughs> so for some reason, this Buddhist who I trusted said, this is what you do. Okay. If you feel guilty and you have guilt, you'll repeat the thing over and over and you'll keep feeling guilt if you regret something you will make a different decision next time and so for whatever reason I promised myself that if I got pregnant again I would keep the baby and the reason why that's so crazy is because I probably make promises to myself all the time <laughs> that I never keep right. but for whatever reason it stuck and so when I f saw that pregnancy test just like the one I saw six months earlier, I had an issue taking my birth control pill. <laughs> I don't want to gloss yeah. over that just really quickly because there are going to be some people that are going to wonder the, if you'd had a an unintentional pregnancy before, were you not now going to be more cautious? So I was shoot. This is I was shooting this movie, right. and I wanted to take a birth control pill that didn't affect me so right. badly, right. and so I was switching pills. That's my ex explanation for it. Like, it really happened in this period of time where I was going from this one pill to this other pill. And maybe there was, like, a crossover time where <laughs> one ran out and the other started. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's a good thing in the long run, right? We wouldn't it, be here talking. I so. know. I mean, I really, like, yeah. And so did you ever have further contact with this Buddhist monk? Never again. Never again? <laughs> if he's listening. I know. Lama uh, Maru. Yes. All right. So you get out to L.A. at... From what I read, I think 11 weeks into this. Mm -hmm. What do you find out here? There's this actress, Sarah Romer, who was shooting a movie, who I'd worked with, who said, oh, come stay in my house. So I lived in her little apartment. And at this point, like my best friend, Jen Taylor, from high school was like, let's go fix this. You don't have to go through with it. You know, she's like, I'll drive up right now. Right. And but anyways, so then I find a real roommate off of West Side Rentals. Of course. And then about seven months pregnant, Mark came out and said, all the stuff you were worried about, it's taken care of. Let's let's do this. So he was wanting to get back together. Yeah. Had you had any indication that he was coming, that, that, that any of that? No, because I was trying to lure my high school boyfriend into having this baby with me. And he was like, you, I don't think so. Thank you. So Mark shows up. So then Mark shows up and we have this incredible home birth where I pull Isaac out standing up in our living room in Beechwood. So we decide we're going to make it work. We have this baby, and it's this incredible birth, right? And then a couple months in, he leaves to go make a movie for six months, Scott Pilgrim. Okay. 
I think Isaac was five months old. I guess it was longer than five months because he was visiting for Isaac's one-year birthday, and it was like, okay, we're officially not going to be together. Things had transpired where it was just clear that it was not the right thing. Right, right. And so then at starting at age one, we've never we have been right. split up. Now, a lot of people, I would count myself among them, like I can't imagine remaining best friends or very close friends with somebody who I've broken up with after being that close at one point. I mean, I, I think it's so admirable. I just don't, and yet that's what you guys are, right? Yeah, I can't explain it really. We've worked really hard mm-hmm. and we are not always nice to each other. <laughs> it's We've gone through periods of time, right. you know, where it's been hard, but it just wasn't okay not to be, not to always come back. I guess having the child helps that. Yeah. yeah. You have to figure it out, right? And everyone in our li- lives, like his wife and my husband and everyone else are supportive of it because mm-hmm. it just like it had to be right right and you always were going to share custody of the child or no well that's a little bit more complicated I mean it's hard to because when you have a baby that young and you're alone it's never going to be 50 50 right. it's sort of morphed and has grown as Isaac's gotten older and when he's in town we try to do 50 50 just in case anyone's listening without having yet seen Smell, I don't want them to think I'm being so personal, which I wouldn't normally be, except for the fact that it all kind of is going to come back when we talk about the show. But I guess continuing towards that that buildup of the of the show. So now you are a single mom with a young baby, mm-hmm. trying to still have to put a roof over your head, right? What were your experiences with that? Are you doing other jobs on the side? Logistically, how did it work when you did have an audition? I read one music story, I guess, when you went out for the part that ultimately went to Kristen Ritter on Breaking Bad. Just how did this all work? I mean, the show was born out of this period of time between when Isaac was one and maybe four. And I was moving all the time. I was having all these different jobs. I almost moved back to Boston. It was really this, there was, after I did this show, Blue Mountain State, there was a year where every three months, Isaac and I moved, and he was like three at the time. And I have just really crazy stories of the people that I lived with (laughs) during that time. And so then I just started writing. I was like, this is, this. I have to at least, you know, use this material in some way but to give i mean people think oh she's an actress out in hollywood and she's been on in some things she must have made some real money at that point let's say blue mountain state is i think was on from 2010 to 2011 on spike this was like a sitcom but they even call it because it was spike not a livable wage (laughs) no they literally are like we can't hold you because they we don't consider this at least for what they paid me (laughs) and so therefore even though you're on board doing that, you're having to do side things like... Okay, so I mean, my main gig was tutoring at this tutoring center called Brain Text, which is now shut down, where I would help kids with their AP, SAT, and college essays. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like my first gig as a mom, that I could buy my $500 Toyota that I, you know, that I was like so (laughs) proud of, which I still drive a Toyota Camry, but I I will always, but this was like my first car and I was excited. So brain text where we had, you know, it was in Koreatown, mainly Korean students and a friend from Columbia helped me get that job. And so you have to now pay for a babysitter. The other thing is my mom moved out here when I was doing that for a couple of years and helped me. 
that made life a little easier to not I'm sure it wasn't easy but it was made life a little more dealable there was a babysitter that I didn't have to pay right. when I had to right. go to work you could at least keep what you are and Mark too so basically between my mom and Mark it would be like here's my schedule for the week you know when can you guys watch Isaac right. well so the jobs that you were getting I guess correct me if any of this is wrong or if I'm leaving out anything but sort of chronologically it seems like the important ones there was a smaller part in this Duplass Brothers film The Freebie which went to Sundance in 2010 I think it was all improvised right yeah then there would have been Blue Mountain State which we just talked about that's 2010 as well and you were playing Mary Jo a drunken cheerleader and you've said that the pay was helpful but you weren't always totally thrilled with the character you were having to play Yeah. I mean, I was sort of caught in this place of, oh, my God, I have a job. Mm -hmm. Don't mess it up and don't get fired. It was my first real job. So in terms of like long term character on a set. And then it was just complicated because the politics of the show were so different than mine. And I really just pretended that I was okay with all of it. (laughs) Because you've always seemed to have had sort of like a feminist bent, right? That was the... Yeah. And this was... Can you maybe describe the character? I mean, basically, the show is just about this group of friends who play on a football team in college and just want to drink beer and, you know, sleep with girls. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of the one main girl character who was the sister of one of the guys. And... It was as crazy on set as it was off. Really? Yeah, it was really crazy. And so I sort of took on this role as like therapist <laughs> to the guys because I had a two-year-old. So I was like, I think they were so shocked that, that I had a kid yeah. when they cast me. Right. I mean, my agent was like, what did you do to get this job <laughs> there? I well, mean, I like spray tan, pushed a bra, did all the things. I was going to say, you said, I just came across a quote of yours, quote, I'm always saying to people, sorry, I'm not actually a spray tanned woman yeah. with triple D breasts. Totally. <laughs> I know it's such a disappointment. Right. <laughs> but I really love those guys too, right. as much as I didn't agree with it. Right. Well, then the next big one, I think, and really maybe the the first that allowed you to breathe a little bit would have been Mixology. This is ABC. Yes. Uh, sitcom again. I owe everything to Mixology because I had money to pay for my shorts. Okay. So that was it. Like I And I lucked out into that job because it was a recast straight into series. And it was it was just like the most amazing thing. So I had no idea like how I got it, you know. And then... <laughs> And then I booked it, and then so that was so so incredible because that is well, real money. That was on from 2013 through 2014. In 2015 is when, at the very beginning in January at Sundance, the first incarnation of Smelf happened. So before we even talk about how well that went over, just what was the impetus for the first version of Smelf? Okay, so when I booked Mixology. That was in in May of that year Mm -hmm. of 2000 and I guess 13. Mm -hmm. Around March, I had written a script because I was so sick of being broke with this small child. And I thought I could get staffed on a show and then I'd have a regular job. You were ready to give up the acting to be a writer. Correct. And so I wrote a script and it was much more broad version. It was, you know, it still had Boston and mom, but it was just like a, a sort of network version. This girl gets evicted from her apartment. 
And she has a sister who goes to Harvard, and they, like, trying to figure out what to do with her. And then she decides to tell the guy she had a one-night stand, that she had the baby, and she needs to move in with this, like, odd couple. Like, it's sort of, you know, upstairs, downstairs, odd couple, weird situational comedy. (laughs) So I had given the script to Catherine Hardwick. And How'd you know her? I met her on a plane coming back from Blue Mountain State. You have too many of these stories. It's unbelievable. It's so ridiculous. I know. <laughs> and she had called me in to audition a bunch of right. times. And one time I gave her some script suggestions. And she said, <laughs> if you ever write a script, send it to me. So I sent it to her. It had been months. It had been like two months by the time she read it. Her interns read it. And we're like, oh, we like this thing. And she called and said, I want to direct it. So then she brought it to a producer named Michael London. And so the three of us sat around. This was, I don't know, during that spring. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so he said, make it more like your life. And then I, because I booked Mixology, I no longer was trying to staff with it. We're like, let's just try to develop it. Right. So then I was rewriting it. And in so doing it, I realized I, don't, I didn't think people were going to understand how I meant it to be seen just by what they were reading. So I actually shot the film, the short film of Smilf based on just one scene that was in an already written pilot. Like proof of concept. Exactly. It wasn't supposed to be a short. It was really for my pitch. But But it was done in a polished enough way that it was, or did you then redo that? No. So I just realized as I was editing, I'm like, oh, this stands on on its own. I might as well just submit it. To Sundance. So I was actually <laughs> shooting the Blue Mountain State movie right. in Wilmington right. when Sundance was like, oh, you got in. Oh, my God. And so d- was getting in a huge deal, let alone I mean, I what remember where out. I was and how it felt <laughs> and who called me. Yeah. You do? Where, <laughs> yeah. well, so I was on the street in, in Wilmington yeah. with my mom and Isaac, who were all living together so mm-hmm. I could make this movie, and Landon. Yeah, yeah. He called me and was like, we have good news. Your short got in. And it was... <laughs> It's incredible. Now, the short had been, again, it wasn't intended to be a short, but what it took to make it was you essentially betting on yourself, right? You had to dig into your own, because nobody's paying for this, right? Right. How much was the short? I made two shorts that summer, and both were proof of concepts for TV shows. That one was about Mm 4000 and the other was about 10000 Right. But I had just done the season of TV, and so I was like, let's just... a little bit. Yeah, bet on yourself. Flush with cash, you know? (laughs) So you then go to Sundance, Mm -hmm. and people see something you've made beyond acting alone for the first time, and it wins the jury award for best short. I mean, this is... What was that, however many days you were at in Park City, like? I'd been there before as the girlfriend so many times that it was so empowering and it was so fulfilling to be there and be part of a community with something that I wrote and directed. That was really like it was just so I I was like, oh, this feels so good. And when the awards were announced after that and, and, you know, in the aftermath, were you noticing uh, that? people were now more after you to do things or or I don't know if that I know with features maybe that tends to happen I don't know if it happens with with shorts as much did you notice a bounce yeah you get I mean you're just meeting with people as a filmmaker now and even even if it's not like oh go make our feature it's like stay in touch when you go make a feature mm-hmm. or just like what are you working on it's right. just you it's definitely it definitely changed after that and were you immediately thinking you know I remember Whiplash, for instance, I think the year before Smelf won the Best Short Award there, I think Whiplash, the short, mm-hmm. 
won the best short award there, and then a year later was a feature at the Oscars and all that. So was there immediately thought in your mind or other people saying to you, like, let's expand this you know, into a film? Or did you, in your mind, always see the potential to do more than even a film, make it a, a longer thing? Well, it started as that pilot, right, that I'd rewritten into a version of what this show is. So I was already working with people on a pitch to go to go out to different networks when Sundance happened. When we won the award, that was when we're like, we need to go pitch this now. Right. I think I'd finished writing the pitch right after Sundance. Like it was almost done because I'd been working on it all fall. Right. Yeah, it sort of just lined up that and way. And never any thought to, instead of a series, to do it as a feature film? I think if I hadn't, already had producers and we were already planning. I had one meeting after Sundance about turning it into a movie. Like the people who did Obvious Child, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, They sort of saw a similar thing. And so, but I was, there's already sort of momentum and people with it being a show. Right. So where does Mr. Robot enter the picture? Okay, so Mr. Robot, I actually shot like the first season when I was writing the pilot. So okay. I was... Pre-Sundance. No, 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 sorry, after Sundance. So okay. basically... Um, like that fall when I found out I got into Sundance was when we shot the Mr. Robot pilot. Then Sundance happened in January and I sold the show to Showtime in February. Okay. So it was already off like outlining when that spring, March and April, we were shooting Mr. Robot. When you got the job on Mr. Robot, was it only a one season arc because they knew that you had to get out of there? Well, the reason why I couldn't be a series regular yeah. was because of that. Yeah. But originally that role was just going to be a couple episodes and then we did the pilot and sam had this other new idea for her right. and so they basically were like you have to come to new york it's for two months but you have a really great end was the thing <laughs> so that was yeah always and just so you know familiarize listeners sam is sam Esmail, the showrunner you were shayla the drug dealing love interest of mm -hmm. elliot and you do have a very memorable exit. Uh, I guess is it is it is enough time passed that I we feel can like reference it, has. it? All right, so we <laughs> in a trunk. And in fact, I think you might be the second person we because how did they get rid of Rachel Brosnahan on House of Cards, right? Oh yeah. I, I think it, so. Well, join the club there. So when that show caught on in such a big way, which would have been, I guess, I think it came out in the summer of 2015, yeah. was winning awards in. January 2016, Golden Globe, I think for Best Drama Series, all this stuff. Were you able to enjoy any bounce out of that or you were already locked into what you were doing? Yeah, it's funny. It was like the first time that I experienced like interest right. in pilot season in a way that there was like an offer right. for a show, uh. you know, but I couldn't do it. And you were already doing what you really most wanted to be doing? Or, I mean, if you. It was a little bittersweet because yeah. at this point, Development takes so long, and no one ever really usually gets to make a pilot letter, you know? So, I mean, I was told, it's really nice you have this thing, but it's right. never going to happen. Well, because, yeah, people, again, just if there's anyone not from the business listening, if the pilot had not gotten picked up and you've missed the boat on whatever opportunities had come out of Mr. Robot, you're not back to zero, but it's not a great... Yeah. position right and also at that point we didn't know that we were going to even make a pilot we were just i was just writing the script so nobody had committed to because what had to happen for that to so when we sold the pilot basically they're paying us to write a script that was in february 
of, I didn't, 20, of 2015, 15, yeah. the final draft didn't go in until April 2016. So it was a long right. time. But then we shot the pilot that fall. Like we found out in the summer sometime. But once you find things out, then you're it's like this accelerated it pace. It goes fast, yeah. yeah. So where again in, in all of this chaos in the, in a good way, but where did you have time to go and do this other short that premieres at Sundance yeah. and then goes to South by Southwest? And I think further illustrated that you were competent is the, is the, is an understatement, but to go and do a show like Smelf, you now could show somebody the Smelf short and from 2016, the, this other short too legit. I have a producer friend, Liz Destro, and she said, Hey Frankie, do you have any shorts lying around your, like on your computer? Because I have a friend at a college who wants to teach a short. And I, so I found this script I'd right. written because I applied for the AFI directing, women's directing lab, and got rejected with this <laughs> script. <laughs> and so she read it and she's like, You should make this. Like, I'll raise money. You should go make it. And so I really owe it to her. She found like $60,000, which is much different than my. Three or four thousand right. dollars, and so then what was really exciting about this one was, I had given the script to Zoe Kravitz's agent, and didn't know her at all, and she did it, and she, we we didn't we were strangers, and she read the script. We had a phone call. She's like, "Sure, I have these three days, <laughs> like in some of the days I have fashion shows at right. night." So, <laughs> just because I think it's so creative and funny, why is it called Too Legit? So there was a congressman, and he said that if you have, okay, so if you get pregnant, and if it's, you get pregnant from a rape, if it's a legitimate rape, your body will dispel of the fetus on its own, because your body knows if it was legitimate or not. And so we basically, we did this sort of satire. What if we lived in a world where (laughs) that was actually true, and this girl she wants to know if her rape was legitimate or not and goes on a journey to find out if she needs to get the abortion or if body will get rid of the fetus. Right. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so you get to move forward with making your pilot. You know, you've mentioned Catherine Hardwick. There were a couple other people I came across here who I, it sounds like were somewhat also helpful along the way. Mm-hmm. Jill Soloway, Paul Feig. Mm-hmm. How did you cross paths with these guys? So Jill knew that we were figuring out this pitch and called and said, don't let them take directing away from you. So essentially it was in my contract that if they were going to buy the pilot, I would be directing it, which was huge given I'd made three shorts, you know, and directed a few episodes of a TV show. And so we'd met at a barbecue years before and actually made a short together. Really? Yeah. And so that's how we met. Jill identifies as gender non-binary. You said in an interview that I came across, quote, There was a period of time where I stopped wearing anything feminine because I was just exploring what it was to just be in my brain. What that is, it's a whole process to figure that out, I think, for anyone, close quote. Was that in any way, I don't know, chronologically, was that inspired or was that just a coincidence? Yeah, that was a coincidence. Actually, I'm not sure where our timelines like line up, but it's something in terms of when you define yourself as an object in many regards for whatever reason, it takes an undoing. And I think I'm still playing with that, you know, and because of our, the rules of our culture. The patriarchy. The patriarchy, yes. say the word, yes. the patriarchy. 
so funny. So my cousin's writing in the writer's room, and she was a housewife in Houston with two kids and a lawyer husband. And she was going out of her mind, and she's from South Boston. Right. Literally 10 years of depression, I think. Anyways, I gave her all these books. <laughs> and so she's like, I'm like, Jess, if you want to come work in the writer's room, come. And she literally that night changed her Facebook page <laughs> to Hollywood. <laughs> and she's in the room right now. That's great. But her husband came and visited. And he was like, oh, there's all this turbulence on the ride. And I was reading this book Jess wants me to read. And it's called The Gender Knot. And if you're not familiar, it basically breaks down what patriarchy is. And I highly recommend it. And it's a little bit heady and academic, but that word gets thrown around a lot. And I, I think that if people understood where it comes from or where these rules came from, it wouldn't be as like scary of a right. term. That sort of is the Jill chapter with Paul Feig. How did you end up involved with Ghostbusters? Okay. So Paul Feig decided he would be the first man to take part in this initiative to mentor directors. So he watched a bunch of short films that were submitted and he chose mine. I believe it was too legit. He saw mm -hmm. maybe it was smell. I'm not sure. And so we met and he's like, sure, I'll mentor you. <laughs> and then by then he was just in post on Ghostbusters. So I'd come in and sort of watch a cut or go to the mix stage and watch him on this like beautiful multi-million dollar mix stage and just sort of see how he did it. And he said, and I think it was a New Yorker interview or something, that I guess you, he solicited from you, or maybe it wasn't solicited, just notes on what you were seeing in the editing room. And I think he was in there with Amy Pascal, who was oh, one yeah. of the producers. <laughs> and they were very, very impressed with your notes. Maybe it's, I don't mean it to sound patronizing, because of course they would be. You've You'd had experience, but it was... But not really. But <laughs> no. that was so, you know, so this is all to say that now with this background, you now go in to make this pilot for the first time ever in a TV capacity, mm -hmm. basically being in charge of all the major responsibilities. And for the pilot, you had already won the confidence of Connie Britton, right? And Rosie O'Donnell, or well, did Connie they come later? Rosie was in the pilot. pilot I'm trying to Connie that. was a character that I added later okay. who saw the original pilot, and then I added her storyline into the pilot. That was a pretty big thing to get Rosie O'Donnell for a pilot, right? Yeah, I, I really believe Rosie had seen the shorts and was excited about the feminist politics behind the show. And so we had FaceTimed, and sh she also comes from this big Irish Catholic family, and it just felt like a really good fit. Yeah. And neither of us, I don't think— knew what was going to happen well and not only what was going to happen what was going to happen the day so you, you your pilot gets picked up right you go to work now a few months later on the rest of the first season and what was your first day doing that it was the day trump was elected <laughs> the election results you know were announced in the middle of the night right and that day that next day was our day one of shooting and everyone is crying, watching Hillary's concession speech. And Rosie, I mean, it was it was a dangerous time for her. Somebody on one of our locations came up to her, yelled at her, swore at her, was like, I don't need to listen to you anymore. And what people don't understand about Rosie is just be, is how sensitive and thoughtful she is because she was at the time portrayed as this very like brash Trump hater. And so, and I think, it's seen, obviously, in Smilf, yep. her sensitive side, but it was really hard. She had canceled a trip back to L.A. She was supposed to do an event. She was too afraid to fly. People were heckling her. 
I think for me, I sort of blocked it out until January when I was done in the edit. And then I was like, oh, no. Now you, yeah, look what we're dealing yeah. with. Well, especially because of the so many of the themes of your show. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not like, and literally, and I can't imagine this was a total coincidence, but like, literally, grab him by the pussy is inspired in, by it, our it's, president. It's was it okay? Oh, a hundred percent. Okay. What happened was, so he took office, and it gave me, and I think a lot of artists, this freedom. You're like, oh, we are gonna explore and say everything mm-hmm. we want. We're not gonna be afraid because he's so scary. Right. So we have to do whatever we can to speak up and say what's in our hearts because we're also we're silenced all around, you know. So were the scripts all locked before he won or did you change things after he won? He won. That's when we shot the pilot. And so we wrote everything that summer. We actually had Rosie in a MAGA hat, which we might bring back. <laughs> but he was being so racist when yeah. we were shooting the series that it, it like got too dark yeah. to even have her do that. Crazy. You do the pilot, and then it gets picked up. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, again, I guess, the? did you expect on the basis of how the pilot went, did you feel confident that it would be picked up? I did, and then yeah. it wasn't. What do you mean? So they said they were picking up two out of the three pilots. And then David Nevins, head of Showtime, calls, and he says, Frankie, I'm not picking you up. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, let me sit down. I really right. thought... But then I also was like, you know, Trump's president, so nothing's reliable. Like, we anything can happen. And he's like, I, he's like, I just don't know yet. I don't know what the show is yet. Can you write two scripts? So I'm like, all right. So for a couple months, wrote two scripts, wow. and then he called in May, and then just last year, I was like, okay, we're picking you up. So not even it's not even been a year since you learned that you had a show. No. That's weird. That's crazy, right? I know. So when you now knew that you had the job basically beyond the pilot, did you feel yourself confident that you were equipped and ready to be showrunner, writer, producer, director, and star of a full-on, full-season series? Or did you have to just kind of fake it to make it? I honestly didn't have time to think about it. So when David called that day, it was May 11th, and he said, you have to air November 5th. So a lot of what goes into this job is just hiring people. So I probably spent the next month hiring everyone, at least my line producers, we could get it going. And then my writers. So we didn't start the writer's room till June 4th to shoot August 22nd. And because I am wearing all the hats, we have to get all the scripts done before. It was just a mad dash of like adrenaline and instinct. And when things got crazy because we were the schedule was so truncated, it was just sort of like the scrappiness of like, uh-huh. okay, we'll figure it out. Right. And so that's what happened. What is WGA showrunner training? Oh, okay. So that's a that was a really lucky thing that I got to do. You apply through the WGA every year, and they do a six-week training program. This is before I had the show, too. Uh-huh. Basically, it ended in the April, and then I knew in May that we were doing the show. So six weeks, you have visiting showrunners come and sort of tell you all of their war stories. Right. Yeah. And that was helpful for when you actually... It was so helpful mainly because they said two things. They said, delegate or die. Right. And they said, good scripts on time. Right. And those were my two mottos. You basically do, I guess, have to approve the hiring of all the 
people around you, which makes sense if you're the showrunner. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, some might assume that it's your first big gig doing all these things. You're just going to perhaps be grateful and say okay to whatever is foisted upon you by the production company or the network. So in this case, ABC Studios or and Showtime. And yet, when they initially suggested your department heads, how did that go over? I, this was also maybe my inexperience, but when I first was submitted names and they were all men, I said, I'm not going to look at any names unless half of them are women. So I think they adjusted, you know, and then I was looking at everybody, right. but it just takes a little, and we actually, I'm hoping to have that as a mandate because I'm hiring all of my department heads. I mean, and these are like the key hires. Right. So it's so important that you're meticulous about it. But then what I want to change this year, like I wrote an email to all my department heads and I said, Hey, I want to have this diversity in all of our departments. And then I'd go to one department and it's all, you know, guys or whatever. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I actually, it has to be mandated. It can't just be like right. a friendly email right. because people are going to hire their friends. And so that's what's going to be a little bit that's different. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. And of your, all these different hats that you now have to wear, is there one that you find that you like the most and like the least? Directing is As my love. Most. Yeah. I'm figuring out how many I'm going to direct this season. In the my, season one was, what was it? I did three. Three of eight. Yeah, of eight. But, you know, because I'm there, you're able, I'm able to sort of, I don't know, just I'm there anyways. Yeah. So I'm like, should I just direct all of them? So I'm thinking about that. If you had to give one of these up, what would it be? I don't know if I could. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, I don't love all of the BS that goes with some of the show running stuff. But then I don't know if it could be anyone else because you have to be the keystone for the creativity yeah the vision's got it yeah yeah protector yeah i think the questions that you've probably had the most it seems from just reading everything i could is where do these ideas come from how much of it is about is actually inspired by your life and so i hope that maybe and maybe this will potentially spare you from having to do that it forever mm -hmm. let's can we go through a few of these different well first of all just the the root of each episode I thought it was very interesting. You were saying it comes from one idea. And then in a way it's working backwards. Some people need to outline the whole thing. Some people need to, you're saying that, I think I saw in one instance, what if Bridget gets in Connie's bathwater? Yeah. And then you build an episode, like you can extrapolate from that. Yeah. Is that true for, that was true for all eight episodes? Pretty much. That's my creative process. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be like one scene or, you know, this year, we're working on an episode based off an idea I had last year, which was, what do Connie's housekeepers do? Like, what if we followed them for an episode? Right. And so what'll happen is it'll be that idea, and then we'll always mix it in some sort of research. So there's this book, Global Woman, that talks about nannies, housekeepers, and sex workers. And so we're sort of reading that to help with, you know, that idea. And is that because you feel like without it seeming like a lecture, you do want to actually address real world things. I mean, let's just let, let's just quickly run off for people. I mean, you guys talk about sex and class and race and all the different things that come into this. It's not like in, in an on the nose way, obviously, but you're covering a lot of ground. So is that 
that's not just coincidental. You have a desire to say something with each episode? Yeah, the desire is to explore themes and ideas that I'm passionate about. I mean, our best stuff usually comes when a writer, you know, has a real story. And then we get into, like, what's behind it, you know. I mean, I would say we, I could go I could go through the episodes and think this was the, tr- kernel, the kernel of truth. Yeah. And then these were the ideas that we were that were swirling around it. Just without knowing you, but just what we've talked about, Bridget from Southie, right, mm-hmm. dreamed of making it as a basketball player, split from the boyfriend, had their child, remained close with the boyfriend and his new love interest, mm-hmm. did SAT and AP test tutoring, admits to various, you know, things that probably happen very often with mothers, but they don't own up to, like, running out briefly to go run an errand or whatever while the kid's at home. I read having sex while the kid's on the bed, responding to Craigslist ad for an opportunity to make some extra money. So I'm sure I'm not, this is not a complete list, but there's obviously a lot of you and her, right? There is a lot, yeah. But then there's also, obviously, we de- there's a large departure too, you know? So I never slept with someone that I tutored, like tutored, right. or right. I never had sex with someone in a grocery store and said <laughs> that his dick was tight. <laughs> so that was like, oh, let's explore gender tropes, you know? Does it get uncomfortable, though, when people don't know where the line is between you and the character? It's so or... funny, because as you were reading that, I was uncomfortable. Really? Like, oh, it's not all like that. Yeah. Only because I guess like my life as a single mom wasn't as messy as she is. Okay. And I guess I'm a little sensitive about that. Well, I even mean more like you you deal with some very heavy stuff here, and particularly, I think, in the eighth and final, the season finale, where you're looking at sexual abuse and stuff, and I just feel like that stuff, even getting questions about... Yeah, I mean, what how I talk about that episode is, I mean, sexual abuse, as we've seen, is so rampant. Right. Everyone has a story, or almost everyone. Right. Or they have a story about their mom or their sister or somebody. And it's a thing that is so stigmatized. And so I wanted to approach in a way where it wasn't so. And it's we shot everything before the Harvey Weinstein article That's came out. That's so unbelievable. It's so crazy. So that just happened to be this sort of serendipity of time. Yeah. When you see how well now, now with, you can, I imagine, sort of breathe easy and see that people have really liked what you did with the first season and great reviews and the Golden Globe nominations, all that. If you were to dissect it yourself and try to figure out like why people have loved the show, why they love your character, there's obviously the underdog factor. People Mm -hmm. root for her to do well. She's got the odds stacked against her. She seems like a nice person, right? Yeah. But... Did you just sort of, in the best sense, like, not and not to take anything away from the rest of it, did you capture the right moment? I think so. Yeah. I think that we got so lucky with the timing. I think people really want to see something that feels real, and I, that's something that we really try to do with the show. I also think there's something about the show. A writer pointed out to me that the show feels very hopeful, and Bridget is not cynical. Yeah. In a way that maybe shows about struggling 20-somethings are often very cynical. Right. And so there's like a, just a lot of 
optimism and hope. And even though like it's a struggle and the circumstances are hard, there's just like, all right, let's figure it out. This kind of attitude that I do personally share, you know? And so it, and so that's sort of, I was really appreciative that that's how someone interpreted the show. Yeah. How do you respond when, you know, every show has people that give it a hard time. And in your case, I, I think you're the company of the people who have given you a hard time. I, I think it's almost like a badge of honor, the Catholic League for religion, yeah. for Religious and Civil Rights and a Southie congressman who hadn't even seen it. <laughs> and you gave very polite, thoughtful, written responses to these guys. But like, I think the Catholic League, they said they didn't like it, quote, when it suggested, the show suggested that the Virgin Mary was raped. <laughs> And forced to give birth and then or depicted a homosexual priest sexually mm-hmm. embracing a drunk. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, so the Virgin Mary thing I think is probably the most obvious thing. <laughs> I feel like it makes so much sense right. to me that people would use the birth of Jesus as a cover up for rape. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it's just and it's so funny because I, I got into it a little bit right. with you know, with some of the producers who didn't want me to leave it in the cut. And I was like, well, what? I'm not like, there's nothing bad about Mary. She can still be like (laughs) sacred Mary. Are you saying like a rape victim isn't sacred anymore? (laughs) And then I just started being a smart ass. So I was Uh, like, let's just see how people react. Well, I think the Catholic League has bigger things to worry about. That's what I think too. Last few things, I promise. I really appreciate your time here. I guess... The only place where you, it seems like, I don't know if gleefully is the right word, but like courted controversy with the first season mm-hmm. was very pointedly going after Woody Allen in mm-hmm. the season finale. Just to remind folks, the you use the same title fonts that he uses. You have a quote from him that opens the episode, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things, close quote. And then you cut to a little girl talking about being sexually abused by her father that was my proudest moment. Was, well, so just to play Dell's advocate here, yeah. why go after Woody Allen in your show? I wasn't trying to overtly <laughs> go after him. I was just trying to just point out some hypocrisy, and it made me laugh. And I do feel like this is something that people have, you know, pushed or swept under the rug and. It was just, I don't know, it just was something that here's this old man who's made, who's Hollywood royalty, and he's been accused of sexually abusing his daughter, and yet he's still just regarded so highly. Like, what's the other side of it? Why can't, like, why don't we just back up Dylan publicly through the art? And and so it wasn't like... And this was pre, again, Harvey. Pre-Harvey. Yes. Yeah, it was really just supposed to, like, poke at it. So, Maybe it was more than poking. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think a lot of people really, obviously, a lot of people really appreciate that you did it. But I think I just, you know, the the counter argument that I've seen is that there are some of these guys who have been accused of things who have not yet faced the legal system, right? He, whether it was done rightly or wrongly, you know, people can revisit, but he wasn't prosecuted. And so I think it's just a trickier one than some of these, right? Because... He denies it, and he wasn't prosecuted. But I honestly believe that our system is not set up to believe victims. Yeah. And she was a little girl, and, like, who knows? Right. But rather than assuming 
innocence, you know, I was just like, why don't we just talk about, let's just believe the little girl for a second. And so I think it goes way deeper. There are so many people who are not prosecuted who are guilty. Sure. You know, it's like we can't just base it off of this flawed judicial system necessarily. Maybe some people can, but I wasn't really willing to do that. No, I think that you're capturing again with the show, like this is the question of our time, right? Like how do we deal with this? We actually just had an immigration lawyer come and talk to us today in the room, and it's devastating what we learned about the judicial system in regards to immigrants. And so you just like I don't I don't think we can fully trust the system and the system in which allows so many predators to walk around because of the bad P word, ultimately, patriarchy. That, And also, the other thing to mention, I think, is the show wasn't about Dylan Farrow. Right. The show was about young Bridget. Right. We just used his font and used a quote from him. And maybe it wasn't as subtle as maybe I was th- th- that I'm saying. You didn't have your the Bridget's father sh- or the guy that she thought was her father show up like wearing glasses and right. looking like a nebbish. Yeah. <laughs> nebbish Jew from right. New York. <laughs> New York, right. Yeah. I mean, I did read online. People were mad about it, you know, saying he was proven innocent. But I think there's enough evidence that it's really hard to prosecute that kind of thing. And we really can't know. And she's saying it happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm of the camp of you believe the victim because really the statistics of people who lie about it are so, so, so small compared to how many people have experienced some sort of right. sexual abuse. So that was really where I was coming from. Last two things are very brief. At what age will you let your own son watch the show? Oof. <laughs> I will let him watch parts of a few episodes many, many, many years, many years from, now. from now. He does have a cameo, though, <laughs> he right? He does. He's baby Scott. We're writing him in a little bit more this That's season. That's great. <laughs> and then the last question is when you actually, like, I know it's been pretty hectic dealing with the show since it did get the go-ahead, but... If you ever have a minute and sort of pause to take in the fact that everything that we've talked about this hour, that there was a point not that long ago where you were like on a mattress and not sure where you're going to, you know, get your next paycheck from to now having a show for which you received two Golden Globe nominations for the first season, you picked up for the second season, people are really talking about what you put out there mm-hmm. like I what mean, do you make of it i on one hand i'm really lucky we have to say that there's there is that involved the privilege of like having had my education and and then on the other hand it's like that naive 25 year old who came out here alone and pregnant without a plan and without any money like must have known somewhere that it would be okay and you know or more than okay and I'd land on my feet. So that's a great story. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's so fun. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.